Summer friends, this is Sarah Nayani coming at you from Seattle, Washington, where I grow loads of flowers in a small city yard, and I create floral arrangements that celebrate local seasonal blooms. Flowers have truly changed my life. They've caused me to switch careers and start my business, Grow Girl Seattle. So come along with me as a flower friend to share in the ups and downs of this adventure and learn from inspiring guests together. Today on Flower Friends, let's talk more about signature flowers and seed starting. On the last episode, I described a process I came up with to guide and focus my growing and design plans this year. I get that episode general so that if you'd like to try the exercise, you can listen into part one and come out with your own conclusions, not influenced by me. But on this episode, part two, I'll bring you along on that exercise and share the specifics of where it took me. Of course, a couple precursors or qualifying statements before I start giving out any opinions. First, I want to say that I'm a flower grower and a florist, so I'm speaking through that lens. My goal is to use as many freshly cut ingredients from my garden as I can in my own floral designs, so I want the flowers I grow to be good for cuts, to fit with my design aesthetic, and to fit within my preferred design colors. It's fun for me to document the things I love, and if the past few years are any indication, I know how much my preferences that I share today will keep changing and evolving over time. So this is a snapshot of what feels like me right now, and I think it'll be really fun to look back on in a year or two. So if you want to do this exercise for yourself, it might be fun to look back on yours too. Second, I'm getting into detail on the things I love and the things I don't love in this episode in order to illustrate a general process in a detailed way and to respond to a question I get asked a lot, which is what I like to grow myself, what I like to buy in, and what I like to use for arranging. The longer I do this and the more I practice and play with my design style, the more I'm finding my voice and what works for me. My hope for this little podcast series is that it will in some way help you to more consciously think through your voice, your taste, your signature flowers, and your signature ingredients, and hone in on what it is that you love. Really stick to your guns, even if it's completely opposite from what I love. This podcast is in no way meant to influence you on my favorites or insult you with my non-favorites. I urge you to listen to your gut and what works for you, no matter who's talking. I am nothing if not consistent, and my theme remains the same. You do you, boo. (laughs) Whatever it is that's working best for you, the flowers you're drawn to, the way you want to use and sell those flowers, listen to yourself. Third, if you're growing flowers for your garden or for yourself, like not to sell, I hope there's still some good nuggets in here in terms of kind of narrowing down the incredible array of flowers available, and putting more focus on your favorites. Or if you're a farmer growing flowers to sell wholesale to floral designers, I hope one florist perspective on ingredients I most love working with is in some way helpful for you. Okay, enough on the disclaimers. (laughs) Let's get to it. Earlier this year, I opened my big boxes of seed packets and felt a little overwhelmed by everything I wanted to grow and where the heck everything was going to go in my pretty small growing space. 
I have 22 garden beds of different sizes here at my house in Seattle, and each year I've been filling more of those with perennial plants that come back year after year, and they just require less care and maintenance than annual plants. Perennials are usually a bigger investment up front, and there are some varieties that you can't cut off right away, but with a little patience, they really tend to pay for themselves quickly because they provide a lot of cutting material. They really extend my season like when annuals are on a break in that mid to late spring time frame and then also into the fall and winter and they add some unusual ingredients to my portfolio that maybe not everyone has so that's been a really good thing but it means I have less room for annual seedlings so this year anything I take the time to start from seed is gonna have to earn its precious space With the number of beds I use for annual seeds shrinking, I decided to close that seed box up and duke it out on paper first with all my plants. Perennials have to earn their spot too. This process of brainstorming and then narrowing things down did more for me than I was initially expecting, and not just for seed starting, but in terms of backing up and thinking about my garden, my floral offerings, my design preferences and also my options for sourcing more holistically. First, I wanted to brainstorm with a clear head. I had a quiet night when my husband was out, so I cleaned off my desk, I lit some candles, I grabbed a blank piece of paper and a pen. Off the top of my head without looking at any photos or seed packets or lists on my computer, I took some time and I wrote down the flowers and foliage I loved most. The very first things to pop into my mind were foxgloves, echinacea, sweet peas, bearded iris, basil, and scented geranium. And I'm literally just taking this right off my written list, which is on pen and paper right next to me. (laughs) So let me go through those six first. Foxgloves are one of my oldest loves. Their shape, the way they grow, their little freckles on each bloom, and the way the bees visit them and they climb up into the little flowers. It just gets me every time. I grew up in Maine and my family used to go to places like um, Mackworth Island where they have these super special little magical fairy houses that people make out of things like sticks and moss and mushrooms And my sisters and I used to watch the movie Fairy Tale when we got home. It's an oldie, but a goodie. You should look it up. Um, And we just totally believed in fairies when we were kids. And maybe a little bit as adults. So I've always thought that foxgloves would be like the perfect place for fairies to live. And yeah, when we moved into this house that um, my husband Vikram and I live in now, The first spring, we moved in, I think we moved in December, and the first spring that we were here, these huge, like, four-foot foxgloves sprang up all over the rain garden, and it was just magical for me. Um, Foxgloves are just my favorite flower, and I just took that to be a sign that, like, this house was leading us in the right direction and that we were just in the place and time that we were meant to be, so... Anyway, I love foxgloves. They work really well for me in the garden and then in floral design as well. Okay, echinacea or coneflower is another really nostalgic one for me because it was the first or one of the first seeds that I grew and it got me really hooked on flower growing. 
So the first plants that I grew back in 2020 were from a packet of Paradise Echinacea seeds. And I got every color out of that pack. There was like bright pink, a purpley pink, orange, yellow, white, and then a super special ombre one you guys might have seen me post about before. I call it Sunset Echinacea. It's like a hot orange and pink ombre. Those same plants that I grew from seeds in 2020 are still in my perennial bed and they bloomed for their third year last summer. And each year I save seeds from them and start more. They look really good in clumps through the garden and the bees go crazy for it. So it's obviously great outside, but aesthetically, I find that it adds something so pleasing and just really wonderful for me in arrangements. The texture of the cone itself, it's got all these like prickly spikes. It adds a lot of dimension. And then the way that the petals sit and they kind of flutter out, like they're kind of reflex back or not reflex, but they just kind of point down from the cone. Um, that reminds me of like a butterfly. I love the way that they move. And, you know, a lot of people are really into the like fancy double versions of echinacea. I love those too, but my heart is really with the singles. I love just like the cone and the like eight or nine petals, how many, however many they have. I just find echinacea to be really happy. Um, I find the singles to have taller stems and I love the way they're kind of light and airy and they dance on top of arrangements and they just make bouquets feel like you're, again, holding the garden in your hands. I think that's really what it is for me. Like when I think about my top two faves, foxgloves and echinacea, it feels like those ingredients bring the best of the outside in for me. And, and also, you know, it's nostalgic for me as well. And then also with echinacea, it's long lasting. And when the petals fade, the cone carries on. So if you put it in arrangements, it might be the last thing that's looking good um, at the end of the life of that arrangement. Okay, the next one is sweet peas, which are irresistible to me in just literally every way. The first thing that really gets me about sweet peas is the fragrance. Uh, I just like, I wish I could bottle it and just <laughs> drench myself in it. I feel like I'd probably be one of those old ladies that like is wearing way too much perfume if this was possible. So it's probably good that we can't bottle it, but Anyway, the first two years that I grew sweet peas, I grew them on my driveway and I would just tiptoe down in the early morning in my PJs and stick my whole face in them. <laughs> Last year, I actually added a sweet pea tunnel in the backyard. And so from that year forward, I can go in the backyard when the sweet peas are in bloom and just stick my face in them and not worry about the judgment of my neighbors. <laughs> um... And then for sweet peas, I love just like bringing handfuls of them inside. I tend to use the longer stems for arrangements, and then I use some vines for bouquets, but I secretly slash not so secretly love it when the stems are short because it means I get to keep those for myself. <laughs> and so I fill every jam jar we own. I put them on every desk, every table, the bathroom, you know, by our beds. It just feels really indulgent to me, um, which is funny because I'm a flower lady, but I'm so often selling and moving those flowers and not, you know, having as many in my house. 
And so especially during sweet pea season, I try to fill the house with the short stems. And then don't even get me started on what they do in arrangements. Um, I just find them to be like so fluttery and frilly. They just really make everything sweeter. Sweet peas. They're sweet. <laughs> um, and they, I find that they really like fill space with a delicate look. So it's not what you would think of as like a filler flower. But if you get a bunch of sweet peas and you work it into like an arrangement or a bridal bouquet, I feel like it just gives this cool, beautiful sort of delicate look. Um, and then if you use the vines, I love how it makes it kind of wild. And some of the vines have these like swirls in them. So, you know, I mean, sweet peas, are they a pain in the ass to trellis and then tie in the vines? Yeah, of course they are. And do my sweet peas get aphids every summer? And at a certain point in the season, do I have to give up on them? Yes, definitely. <laughs> but do I care? No. I find that window when they're in full bloom, I find that to just be one of my favorite windows of the year, both in the garden, in my arrangements, and in my home. And I just can't live without them. So yeah, I'm kind of a sweet pea fiend. <laughs> I don't think that's an original thought, but it is a thought. <laughs> um, and one more thing is just like, I notice when I walk into the flower market, if sweet peas are there, I can kind of smell them right away. And I just, I kind of lose focus of what I'm doing and I just have to go over and inhale them. They're so wonderful. Okay. Bearded iris are another one that I can't resist. Um, I really love the shape, the unusual colors. Some of them just have the most amazing fragrance. Um, I've noticed that like the petals sparkle on bearded iris and then the little beard that they have, it's often a different color than the rest of the flower. So for example, on like a black bearded iris, it might be like a bright orange beard. And I just think that's so cool. I love the little like caterpillar texture. Um, I love the way that bearded iris kind of float in designs because I love to put them like sometimes up above the other flowers and they're kind of like a crown, you know, I think... I think they're just really, really magical. So, so some of the bearded iris varieties that I bought were very expensive. They're like super special, unique colors. But by year three, which is this year for me, they've actually, you know, saved me a lot of money to grow myself and I'll get to divide them soon. So there will be more coming. And then another benefit of growing them myself is that I can harvest them at the right stage and I know exactly what they'll look like when they are fully open, which is something, you know, I'm not always completely sure of when I buy them with closed flowers at the market. So just for example, sometimes it'll look like it's going to be an orange bearded iris and then it opens up at home and it's definitely more yellow. And then sometimes, you know, it might be like, something that looks like it's going to open white and then it opens like a light soft pink. So anyway, the ones I grow at home, I know what I'm going to get and I just really, really love the look. Basil came to mind right away for me because I am obsessed with the fragrance. I, I just can't get enough, especially lemon basil and the cinnamon variety. And the look of basil, I love the tall, hardened up stems for arranging. They just, I find they last forever. They smell so good. And the trick for vase life, which I learned from my friend Margaret at Ballard Urban Flowers, 
is to wait to harvest them. So when basil's young, it looks just like the basil you'd use in cooking, really leafy, and it's also really prone to wilt and arrangements. But when you leave it to flower, it elongates all the way up the stem with little kind of flower umbels, maybe every inch or so. And Margaret waits to harvest until the stems are woody. So I started doing that too. I try to copy everything I can from what Margaret does. <laughs> She's such a good grower and she has such beautiful ingredients. But I actually um, wait to harvest until most of the flower petals have dropped and when I can feel that the stem is like nice and hard. I grew a whole bed of basil last year and I still bought so much more in from Margaret as well as from Kristen at Neighborhood Flower Co. It's one I don't think I've really ever seen at the flower market, which is super surprising to me, but I find basil to be tall, generous, fragrant, and it's really saved my butt in terms of like a foliage slash texture so many times in the past couple years. It's just an element I can't live without. And then scented geranium. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Talk about something you can stick your whole face in. Um, I had bought this in as cuts from the market for a couple years. And last year I wanted to try growing some myself. So I grew old fashioned rose, adder of roses, and chocolate mint. And I went absolutely crazy for it. I cut every stem. I bought so much more in from the market. It's just like a really nice and hefty foliage. It adds dimension and kind of a garden fresh feel and fragrance to arrangements and bouquets. I love like the different leaf patterns and colors like on the chocolate mint. It's this beautiful green leaf, but then it has this chocolate center that's like a dark brown, almost like a deep red color. Um, and so I, I just really love the look of it. But yeah, I think if I had to choose, I probably prefer the more flat leaf like the chocolate mint over the super serrated edges of the leaf on like Adder of Roses because I find the super serrated leaves adds a little bit of a busier line for the eye, but I truly love both. Um, so for this year, <laughs> I've added six new varieties. I've got nutmeg, lime nutmeg, orange fizz, lemon rose, cinnamon, and ginger. I'm, I'm just so excited. I can't wait. It just, I grow it in my driveway, which like heats up quite a bit. And the fragrance just like wafts over that whole area. It's kind of like enclosed. It's a little bit less windy. And so I love walking out there at night or watering. It smells so good. And as you can tell, fragrance is a must have for me. So scented geranium just really puts it over the top with goodness. Okay, so those six were the ones that came to my mind first, but then I really walked myself through the growing seasons, and I thought about what I loved in the garden and brainstormed some of my favorite arrangements from each season this past year to think about what were the ingredients in those. And then through doing those two things, I came up with a lot more flower and foliage types that I can't live without. And again, this was all from phase one of the brainstorm without any references. I was just searching in my brain. <laughs> so in spring, I'll go through these much more quickly than the first six, don't worry. But in spring, um, daffodils. Daffodils are the best. I love the colors, the fragrance, the beauty. They're so cheerful. Fritillaria. 
I was blown away by the Crown Imperials last year. They were one of my top favorites last spring. Um, They're just like a combo. They're really stately, but they're also super funky. They do look like a crown. They're called Crown Imperials. Um, But just the way that, I don't know, I put them in a lot of daffodil arrangements, and I loved the combo of Crown Imperial Fertilaria with daffodils. And then I love the snake's head fertilaria. They have like a checkered pattern. It's so beautiful, like deep purple and white. Hyacinth, the colors in the Empire State mix, um, and then also the blue of the little great muskery hyacinths. The way they smell, I love the pop of color they give, um, and even the super short muskery hyacinth stems. They're so fun to use in like low bowl arrangements. Um, And the color of that blue at that time of year with daffodils and tulips, it just really pops. Ranunculus, that's one, you know, I just could get lost in those swirls for days. They last so long. Um, They just make everything feel really luxe. And I love the open centered kind too, like Telecoat. I know everyone wants like the super, super doubles, the really big, beautiful ranunculus. And I love those, but there's also something so happy to me about seeing the center of a bloom. Think like poppies or daisies or cosmos, beach roses, things like that, where you can just see the center. It just, I don't know, it feels like a natural state of a flower. And so even on ranunculus, I know some people would see like a single ranunculus without, you know, the huge ruffles as like a failure um, plant and pull it out. For me, I actually love those, and I sought out some that I thought would have more singles this year. I'm still growing the really, really fancy, like the doubles, the maritime, the names, that like romance series, but I also sought out some single or ones that have more singles in them or like open centers in them. Okay, butterfly ranunculus. That's another ranunculus type. Um, Of course, I love those. I love the shape and their movement, kind of the way that they dance. Um, And then they have several blooms on each stem that open when the older ones fade. So I just can't resist butterfly ranunculus. I love them. (laughs) Tulips for sure. Um, And there's another one where I love when they open all the way and I can see the center. So exotic emperors are just perfection for me. That's my favorite tulip. And then I love jonqueries. Um, Obviously, La Bella Pâques for its color and shape. And then I find the fringe ones to be really fun. And I love the look of parrots, but last year I found a lot of their necks to be fragile. So I've actually been steering clear of ordering a lot of parrots in my future orders. Peonies, of course, I love. They're so romantic. They're so dramatic. Um, And I love the ones with like the yellow open centers. Garden roses, I absolutely love. Again, so romantic, and I've found myself really gravitating towards yellow roses lately. I just, I don't know, I find them so happy, and I know yellow isn't everybody's color, but it is it is quickly becoming one of my favorite colors, and I think it's interesting that almost every flower, if you think about it, has some element of yellow in it. It's the color of pollen for many plants, and I don't know. I'm just loving like a bright yellow lately. I'm just I just love bright colors. (laughs) So um, lupins, lupins are a forever favorite for me. Um, They're from my childhood. I used to 
go like well I think I've told the story before but my friend Annie had this like field that we didn't know was hers until I met her in high school we weren't friends when I was like a kid growing up we were in different schools but when we went to high school we were in the same school and I pulled into her house and she had this field of lupins that my mom and I used to go like traipse about we thought it was like public property (laughs) and we used to get handfuls of lupins from her field so anyway that's a funny one but I love like the piercing blue and I love all the colors that lupins come in then lilacs are another one from my childhood. They're so fragrant. They're so fleeting. It's such a quick season. I think maybe there's nothing better than a bunch of lilacs on the table. They, they make the whole house smell amazing. They're so fragrant and beautiful. And it just really sets the scene of a place and time. And I love that. Okay, mint is another one. I love the fragrance. There's like lots of fun varieties like pineapple and strawberry. Spirea is super elegant. Um, It has blooming branches and it's not what I would ever call a filler, but in arrangements, it can kind of add so much movement and texture and drama because some of the branches are huge. But I love how it can also hide mechanics. Like if you're using chicken wire and you stick a branch of spirea in, it has all these little leaves and blooms that kind of cover up that little octagon in the chicken wire. And so it's just really great if you stick some branches in, it kind of covers up the mechanics and then you can work with flowers from there. I love mock orange. Um, I am just so head over heels for it. I, I think that it looks like little tiny roses like blooming all the way down a branch and it's fragrant. It's native to the Pacific Northwest and that's another one that just has a really fleeting fast bloom season and it's also really hard to find at the market so I have several plants that I grow here so I can access it when it's in bloom and not miss out. Blooming nine bark is a magical ingredient I bought from my friend Margaret And then I promptly followed up by buying a few plants myself. (laughs) The colors are so cool, especially like on the darker varieties. The flowers are little mauve colored buds. And then nine bark is so nice for foliage later in the year. Ladies mantle was one ingredient I was blown away by last year. I love the electric green with spring ingredients like bearded iris and lupins. It goes really well with that green with kind of electric blues and then like some smoky grays and the bearded iris. I'm just thinking of one arrangement that was one of my favorites last year and it had those elements together. But ladies mantle, it's really airy and light and colorful. It's super joyful. Okay, that was just spring. (laughs) On to summer, poppies. I can't even with poppies. Um, They were one of the first things I grew. They're just the epitome of fun for me. They're super cheerful. I love the bright colors. Even the white version has a bright yellow ring in the center. And then I love the crinkly, like, folded petals. I know some people who grow them and they get really frustrated by, like, how often you have to harvest because they open really fast once they get going. But for me, if I miss them, I just let those ones go to the bees. And I do get a little bit frustrated when I buy bunches of poppies from the market where like only four or five out of a bunch of 10 will make it to the fully open stage just because of like transport, refrigeration. You know, you have to peel the little like 
hairy, <laughs> like, um, I don't know, what, what do we call that? <laughs> I'm tempted to call it the ball sack. <laughs> but <laughs> there's probably a better term for it. I guess the pod, I don't know, the flower pod. <laughs> anyway, should I edit that out? I think I'm going to leave that in. <laughs> but I do get frustrated because like sometimes when I'm peeling those off, you can like break the flower or you open it and it's kind of damaged inside. But even if I get like four or five out of a bunch, um, I find they're pretty cost effective still. And I just, yeah, I can't deny them. They're one of my all-time favorites. And then if you grow them yourself, just another note, they're super, super cheap to grow because you can just plant one tiny little baby seed, turns into a plant, and then you get so many stems off each plant. And they, you know, as flowers, they bloom and then fade fairly quickly in arrangements. But I kind of think of poppies as like jewelry to an arrangement. And I try to create it so those stems can just kind of come out above the arrangement and kind of float on top. And that way, when they fade and the rest, the rest of the arrangement is still plugging away, it's like not a problem to pull those stems out, I guess. Okay, dahlias, obviously. I mean, I don't even need to explain this one. They're such a staple of summer. They've got big blooms, so much dimension. There's so many shapes and colors. Um, I love, like, the texture and kind of dimension of the ball dahlias, the water lilies. And then I love the look of the anemone kinds. But I do get a little frustrated with how fast the petals fall off of anemone. So unless I'm growing them myself and I know I'm, like, harvesting them at the right stage. I don't use anemone dahlias too much. Snapdragons, um, I literally might be the world's biggest fan of the Chantilly and the Madame Butterfly varieties. <laughs> I just love the delicate look. They have more of like an open flower and I love the fragrance and the color. And to be honest, when I sit back and think about it, I'm not the biggest fan of like the Costas and Potomacs. So I'm not even growing those anymore, um, and I'm really not even buying them very much anymore. For me, the chantillies and the butterflies are where it's at. They changed the game for me. I didn't know snapdragons could be like that, and I'll never go back. Scabiosa, especially Fama and Fata Morgana, those are real staples for me. I find them to be super elegant, strong stems. They just want to grow they're so hard to kill. <laughs> They're so easy to start from seed and they reseed super easily. Cosmos are a forever favorite. They have such a delicate look. I love the singles more than the doubles actually. I find they hold up a lot better. A lot of the doubles, they just like they're too heavy <laughs> for their heads. And so I I just really love the singles because I find them to just be a little bit sturdier and maybe a little bit more like upward facing. I also love on Cosmos single varieties. I love like the yellow center. And then I think it's the cupcake one that has like the crinkled um, folding patterns on the petals. And I, I really love that. Zinnias are just magical. I find them to be total givers. They're so easy to grow and they have huge long stems. I love the color combo of things like queen lime red with so many other ingredients, but especially with like browns and coppers like amaranth in the late summer and early fall. I love seeing all of the breeding trials, all the cool varieties and colors. 
And then I just wanted to mention that I sometimes ha- struggle when I buy a bunch of zinnias from the market because of the way they get like elastic together and then put in a bucket. I find zinnias have super fragile heads. And when I get those home, maybe it's like a bunch of 10, but I only get to use like maybe six or seven of them. And so I find growing my own zinnias to be really helpful. Obviously, I can't grow every color and variety, but I love to grow some. And then I also source those a lot from my friend Margaret because it's right up the street and she places them singly into a bucket. And so there's no like elasticing to each other. And so I I find I don't get as much breakage that way. Bee Balm Monarda is such a little alien plant. I love it. I love the weird like spaceship umbels that go up the stem. And I just love the look and texture. I find it grows really happily here. It has tall stems and it was such an unusual ingredient. I haven't seen this one much at the market, but I put it in almost every bouquet and arrangement that I had last like late summer and early fall. And I think using it in my designs made them look pretty different from other people's. So that's a great ingredient for me. Lysianthus, okay, it's total staple in late summer. I just wish it would bloom a little bit earlier because I find the majority of colors to work better earlier. I don't love like soft pinks in the fall, but a favorite color palette that I made work in September and early October when I had a bunch of like cream champagne colors was to do like a peaches and cream palette with orange. And then I also did a palette that I loved. I called it pumpkin spice latte, where I used those like creamy champagne lisianthus with orange dahlias and copper amaranth. So it was kind of like coffee pumpkin colors. And then in some of them, I actually added opal basil, which is, is like dark color. And it's so pretty. It's like, I don't know, a little touch of Halloween, but still like pumpkin spice latte. Like it's muted it's not like bright orange and black it's like you know a more muted palette with some opal basil I found that to be like the best way for me to translate softer colors into fall palettes but I don't think I'll grow soft pink lizzies again the cream and champagne and apricot work great for me in late summer early fall combos and pink is just tougher for me at that time Okay, another one, which I found last year, (laughs) I fell in love with, are pitcher plants. I just absolutely love them. They're so funky and cool. My friend Steve, he's now my friend, Steve Gallick, he reached out on Instagram last spring, I think like late spring, early summer, and he asked if I'd want to partner and try using some of the pitcher plants he's growing in my arrangements. And then in exchange, I would send him photos of my arrangements so he could use that for his website and and just kind of build up the cut picture business. So it turned out to be one of the most fun things that I've really ever done in floristry. And I just had such a generous and amazing supply of these super unusual plants from Steve. They were all grown, never, ever, ever, ever wild harvested. Please don't ever wild harvest pitcher plants. Steve's actually going to be on season four of the podcast. And so we'll talk more about pitcher plants then and, and conservation and the importance of 
if you're going to use them in floral design using cut pitchers that were, you know, cultivated to be grown for cut flowers. But anyway, I fell in love, especially with the Lucos, which are like the white and purple veining colors, usually. And then I also love the green flavas and the way they look with like very similar green tones of Nine Bark and Bells of Ireland. It's more of like a lime green. So those were favorites. <laughs> and then for foliage, some of my summer faves are Baptisia, which is like almost vining in the way that it looks. Nine Bark, I already mentioned. And then I love raspberry and blackberry foliage. In the fall, raspberry and blackberry, they often are still going, and some varieties have like a blushing that is just really beautiful. It's kind of like a, yeah, like a coppery blushing around the edges. Last fall, I used bunches and bunches of raspberry in a wedding installation that I did, and I made the ceremony space look like we brought the garden inside. And raspberry is just really lush and it fills so much space so quickly. So it was perfect for an installation or anything like that. Oh, and abelia. That is one that is so beautiful and it can go from summer into fall. It's got a great like brownish red color in the fall. The flowers themselves are soft pink, but when they drop, it's like these fluttery sepals or leaves or something underneath. Um, it's incredible. My friend Kristen brought me bunches of this last year, and it smells so good, and I just love the texture. Okay, and now a few more from fall. Chrysanthemums, they're so good. They last so long in the vase. They bloom at a fantastic time when other things are wrapping up. I have some earlier varieties that I start, they start blooming in like late September, early October, and others that don't really get started till the end of October. My neighbors walk by and they compliment my dahlias, thinking the mums are dahlias. And they almost, really, they almost look like it. Um, mums just like do the most for me. I love them. Um, my favorite variety is River City, which I got from Miranda at Will Dry Farm last year. I think it might actually be Wild Rye, and I've been pronouncing it Will Dry. So I need to check with Miranda on that. She's also going to be a guest on season four. And then I love Rebecca, which can bloom in summer, um, but I love a late succession that goes into early fall with like the cherry brandy and Sahara varieties because they have nice, rich fall tones. Cherry brandy is like a deep red, and then Sahara goes all the way from a tan yellow into like a brownish, reddish color. Dahlias and some of the varieties I already mentioned, they go from summer into fall. And then a few more from fall, Japanese anemones. They're so airy and beautiful. Amaranth. I know this one grows in summer, but it always makes me think of fall, like grains, harvest with the texture, the color. I, I love using it in early fall designs. And then I found these seed pods in Seattle. I think they're golden rain tree. They are so cool. They're like a sparkly gold. So I love those. In winter, I love hellebores, and sarcococca is a new one that I just got. I got branches from Jello Mold through the growers market, and it just, it smells amazing. It's like, it's one I would love to grow, but it's evergreen. It has beautiful deep green leaves with soft yellowy white flowers. They're like kind of spindly little pom-poms, and it blooms in the middle of winter, which is really cool. 
Okay, so that wraps up phase one of my brainstorm. I think that was about 45 flower and foliage types that came to mind when I thought through the seasons. I drew a line on my paper so I'd be able to go back and know what stage I thought of these in. Next for phase two, I pulled out photos so I could dive further into what I loved and didn't as I looked back on arrangements and bouquets. And it was kind of funny some of the things I forgot that I thought would have been on my first list. I'll go more quickly through these and just list them. Anemones, tulip magnolia, cherry blossoms, rattlesnake grass, silene, orlea, clematis, larkspur, delphinium, nasturtiums, bachelor buttons, veronica, jasmine, hydrangea, yarrow, carnations, queen anne's lace, chocolate lace, lilies, in particular, I love the super delicate and the small varieties with reflex petals, like guinea gold, guinea white, and martagon lilies. They work so well in arranging. I'm not really a fan of the large lilies like stargazer and kind of the more classic lily varieties and arrangements, unless it's like a huge wild arrangement with a lot of scale. But I love all lilies in the garden. They smell so good and they're so beautiful. A few others were fireweed, bells of Ireland, bupleurum, I never know exactly how to say that, frosted explosion, did I mention that one already? Maybe. Feather top grass, lavender, poor man's orchid, it's also called Shazanthus, which is a really cute, funny name. Um, that's one that Kristen from Neighborhood Flower Co. grew last year, and I was just obsessed with it. And then Coreopsis, Verbascum, Phlox, Mignonette, Tomatoes. Cress, oh my gosh, Cress, I love. Flowering cilantro, xeranthemum, that's a fun one that I got from Margaret. Feverfew, um, I like actually the singles over the doubles for Feverfew. I think they're just so sweet with their little petals and their yellow centers. Hops was a fun one last year. Things like eucalyptus, apple of Peru, blueberry foliage, viburnum, love in a puff, smoke bush, chocolate cosmos, marigolds, ferns, and violas and pansies. So that's about 45 more types that came to mind when I was looking through my photos. There's so many good ones in there that I love, but I found it a little interesting that they came to mind with using a photo and not earlier. So I just kind of tagged that in my mind and thought about it. <laughs> And it was during this stage that I started seeing some things that I didn't love in my arrangements and photos. So I kept a list, just a little side list on my piece of paper to note those. I'll save that list for the end, but in general, I noticed some ingredients that kind of look stiff or out of place in my designs. At this point, I drew another line and I went on to phase three, where I pulled out some old shopping lists, some invoices from the flower market, things like seed packets. I looked back at my list of what I grew last year. And if I had a positive feeling, you know, maybe not all of them are an absolute love, but definitely at least a like, I wrote it down. So I had stock, rocket, nigella, bunny tails, campanula, columbine, agrostema, estrancha, agastache, jewels of opar, forget-me-nots, mountain mint, gladiolus, asters, celosia, oregano, and sage on this list. Okay, now I drew one last line and made a fourth list. 
I looked through some upcoming events for this year and listed a few ingredients I'm planning to use for those events, but hadn't listed yet. The first one was baby's breath, which is definitely often requested by brides. I love the look of baby's breath when it's on its own in mass. I love like the airy cloud-like quality, but personally, I have a harder time blending it with other flowers in a way that looks natural. However, the gypsophilia varieties I was able to buy at the market last year, those were grown by local farmers and they have slightly bigger flowers and a little bit of a lusher look to the flowers. Sometimes I think like the normal baby's breath that you think of that comes to your brain, it looks a little bit like a dried flower, but the gypsophilia varieties that are growing right now, you know, they just, they look less dry. They look more like a lusher flower. So I love those last summer and I actually want to try out growing some if I can find the space for it. They're like little stars or just a little universe. The other thing was steepa grass, which is this gorgeous feather-like, it's kind of wispy, it's cream colored, and it's, it's like grass tendrils. It's like singular grass tendrils. And I've seen Alyssa from Flowering Minds use those in boutonnieres, and I just thought that was such a beautiful look. So I've never grown it myself and I haven't seen it for sale at the flower market. So I went down a rabbit hole and I tried to figure out which variety it is. I think it's Deepa Panada. So I purchased a seed packet and I want to try a couple this year. The last thing I wanted to add onto my list is Nicotania. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but I've seen others like Erin at Florette grow and talk about this flower on Instagram. I love the look. I've heard the fragrance is awesome, but I haven't grown it myself yet, and I haven't gotten my hands on cut stems of it yet. It's not one I've seen much at the market. Also, my flower friend Molly at Washido Flowers posted about how much she loves it, so I trust her, and if I can find the space, I want to try to grow that this year. So list four was kind of the list that came from the outside, like elements I need for events but forgot about until this stage of the brainstorm, or things I haven't grown or used before and want to try. To summarize, by now I had in front of me four main lists. First, an off-the-top-of-my-head favorites list with about 45 types of flowers and foliage. Second, a list of loves that I remembered when I looked through photos, and that was about 45 more. Third, a list of what I'll call Lakes Plus <laughs> that I remembered when I looked back through seed packets and market invoices, and there was maybe 20 or more here. And fourth, some floral elements that I consider to be external, so they're coming from an outside influence um, or they were requested for an event or something I, I want to try using. So when I got to this point, it hit me how many things I love. <laughs> I wish I could grow them all and that they could all be available to me in every season. But part of what's so special about certain flowers are how fleeting their season is and how it marks the place and time. And while I have 10 or 20 favorites in every season, I wanted to challenge myself to get down to a list of 10 total signature flowers. I never want to limit what I can use but I've really been drawn to simplicity lately. I love monotone palettes or arrangements with just two or three ingredients in them. And I've been thinking about some of the designers I love, how their design style is almost their calling card, 
where you can see an arrangement or bouquet and know who created it. It doesn't mean people can't experiment or push their own boundaries, try new ingredients, nothing like that. But the idea is sort of building a brand or a calling card. It can evolve with me over time. But what stands out to me about that, it's something I've said before, and I'll definitely say it again, is that when there's some consistency, some common themes in my style, my brand, my vision, and my aesthetic, it all becomes more clear. And I want to give a quick shout out to Alyssa at Flowering Minds. I've been a member of Flowering Minds for the past couple years. And this is something that membership in that has really taught me. I've been doing a lot of experimenting my first few years, trying new things, seeing what fits me. I think I mentioned it in the last podcast. It's kind of like I think of it as my dating phase with flowers. But now I feel more ready to commit to a long-term relationship with certain ingredients. (laughs) I know which ones feel like home, which ones make me the happiest to work with. When I have them in front of me, I just feel like magic happens. Arranging just kind of flows better and it doesn't feel forced or panicky. And I think honing in on those ingredients will allow me to create designs that really celebrate my personal style and preferences. And by showcasing those, I think I'll end up attracting people who vibe with that. Instead of trying to do it all, all the styles, all the looks, what if I just do my style and people who like that come to me? I've been out here moving flowers, taking on clients whose vision is beautiful and that I'm so excited to work with, but maybe not all of the things I created so far have always truly felt like me. That's not anyone's fault. I wanted work. I wanted to create what the client wanted, and it taught me so much and pushed me to test and play with things I might not have otherwise tried. And that experimentation has given me more confidence to pursue what feels like me. So this year, I want to extend those realizations through my designs, use more of those special to me ingredients, and focus on my growing plans by prioritizing those signature ingredients instead of just trying to grow everything. So I had this big, huge list in front of me, over 100 types of plants, and I went through and starred the ones that felt like that to me, signature ingredients. And in the first pass, I got it down to 35. (laughs) And then I pushed myself to try to pick a top 10. So here's what I came up with. Foxgloves, echinacea, dahlias, sweet peas, bearded iris, daffodils, poppies, pitcher plants, the Luco variety. Those are the ones that are in my top 10. Basil and scented geranium. So you heard a lot of those already. I went into detail on a lot. You probably knew they were up there for me. Um, But it was really hard and really fun to try to narrow that down. It's actually a bit scary to share because it's so different for everyone. But I just tried to go for my gut of what I love reaching for the most, what I feel like I can't live without, and what makes me happy and excited to work with when I'm arranging. Then there were maybe 10 to 12 more that I just kept going back and forth on You know, there was like two spots on my list that were kind of open for something, and I wasn't sure on these. These were the ones that I kept kind of like subbing in and taking off, but they're definitely right up there with my like top favorites or right under my top favorites. So I'll list those out too. Fritillaria, peonies, 
Bebom, Minarda, Cosmos, Chantilly and Madame Butterfly Snaps, Roses, Ranunculus, Lysianthus, Flowering Cilantro, that was such a fun ingredient last year, Raspberry, Cress, and then I think this can count as one. It was a three-way tie for flowering branches, so Nine Bark, Spirea, and Mock Orange. Many of my top 10, and actually my top 20, are more on the focal flower side. There's some airy bits, a few foliages, and flowering branches in there. But there's lots more like filler flower types that I love, although I hate that name, filler flower. Um, But there's many more that made it to my bigger list. But I really wanted to focus on the signature flowers that give a look and feel to an arrangement and really stand out to people. This signature flower selection was really helpful for me on the design side, but at this point I wanted to translate it into my grow list. I'm going to grow more than the 10 or 20 varieties that I mentioned, but I don't have room for everything that I brainstormed to grow it here. And there are some things that make sense for me to grow and others that just don't. So at this point, I moved everything from paper to a spreadsheet where I documented the name of everything on my written list, the brainstorm round I thought of it, and added some helpful columns for the bloom season, the ingredient type, like flower, foliage, texture, etc., and then sourcing columns, so whether or not to grow it, buy it, forage it, etc., If you'd like a blank copy of the spreadsheet, you can get the link in the show notes of the previous episode, which is part one. I got everything listed in my spreadsheet right after I finished the brainstorm, but I didn't come back to fill it in until the next day or two. It takes a little bit of time. So I went through each of the hundred plus ingredients on my list and indicated the season I would use that element in, what function it fulfills in an arrangement, And then I thought about whether or not I'm already growing it or want to grow it. So let me just take you through a few examples. Foxgloves got the first row and going through the columns, I wrote that I thought of this in phase one of the brainstorm, check the box for summer to indicate that it blooms in the summer, check the box for flower rather than foliage. And then in the sourcing columns, I checked the to grow myself box Check the already planted box since I started some in the fall and then more in January. And also the two plant box, meaning that I'm going to sow more this year. I'm planning to do a summer succession that I'll put in the ground in fall to overwinter and bloom next year. Echinacea got the second row. I thought of this in round one. In the season columns, I checked the boxes for summer and fall to indicate the seasons it blooms in. For the type or function columns, I checked the box for flower and the box for texture. Since I mostly use it as a flower, but sometimes after the petals fade, I'll use the cones as a textural element. Then in the sourcing column, I checked the box for to grow myself. This column I found to be super helpful because I find I often have separate lists for seed starting, perennial plants, and bulb lists. But this way I have an overview list of all of my favorites in one place and I can filter for what I'm growing myself. I also checked the box that said that I've already planted echinacea because I have a lot in the garden already that will come back. And I checked the box for to plant because I'm going to sow some more seeds. Next, dahlias. This one I definitely want to walk through with you. For the brainstorm round, I wrote down round one. 
For season, I check summer and fall. For type, I check flower. Now for sourcing, this is an interesting one for me. I don't think there was ever a day that I walked into the flower market from late June through early October where there wasn't a bounty of local fresh dahlias available. At the flower market I shop at, which is Seattle Wholesale Growers Market, there are daily deliveries of fresh flowers from local farms. And dahlias are typically bunched in groups of five to 10 with an elastic. They have no film or plastic and they're in a flower bucket. They're transported directly from the farm to the market and they're pretty darn strong plants. So there's not a lot of breakage. My local flower friends that I buy flowers from also specialize in dahlias. From either source, I might not always be able to find the exact variety or color I want in the quantities I want, but I can usually get really close. Because they're readily available and they're fairly affordable for me to buy locally throughout the summer and fall, and because I've had some major issues with Dahlia virus in recent years, I've decided it makes sense for me to buy in more Dahlias than I have in the past and grow less than I have in the past. In 2021, I grew over 70 Dahlia plants, and in 2022, I grew about 40. I do about 10 Dahlias per bed, so that's a lot of bed space for me in such a small growing area. At the end of 2022, after getting a big order in earlier in the year of expensive Dahlias that had all tested positive for Dahlia virus, well after I planted them and they were spread throughout all of my beds interacting with the other dahlias that weren't infected, I decided to toss everything. I wanted to feel safe and secure and just start fresh. It was a huge loss, but I think it's okay. I think it taught me a lot and I'm, I'm just choosing to handle it differently this year. So for this year, I've decided to cap dahlias at one to two beds and only order Dahlia tubers from growers that explicitly discuss their virus testing methods and their sanitation methods. Okay, I can't believe my own restraint, but so far the only order I've placed was through Cozy Town. And big shout out to the amazing Leanne. You can go back and listen to her Cozy Town episode on Flower Friends. But yeah, I got a bunch of dahlias from her and I have one or two other sales that I'm eyeing, but I'm gonna cap the number of plants I can bring in at 20 max and keep the number of growers to three or less so that I have a really good idea of where everything's coming from. And if there's any issues that crop up, I can pull those out quickly. So depending on how many I order, I'll have one to two beds of dahlias and I'll buy in the rest of the cuts that I need this year. So on the sourcing column for dahlias, I checked to grow myself and to plant because I haven't received tubers yet. Next, let's go through pitcher plants. I wrote round one and then checked summer for the season, flower and foliage for the type because I can never quite decide which one they function as in my arrangements. They're kind of both a flower and a foliage. Technically, the pitcher portion is the leaf but they're so beautiful and their shape is so unique that it just doesn't feel like a foliage alone describes it. And I want these to show up if I ever filter on the flower column. So I checked both the flower and foliage box here. For sourcing, these are not a plant that I grow or have space to grow. 
So I'm just exclusively planning to buy them in, and I'm going to buy them from Steve Gallick at Cut Pictures. So for sourcing, I checked the box for market slash buy-in. I took some time to go through the whole sheet. It goes faster than you think with the checkboxes. But first, I just used color highlighting to indicate my top 10 signature flowers I selected. And then for fun, I also highlighted my next 10 in a different color. So I have about 20 priorities, and I put those at the very top. And then for all 117 types on my list, I went through each to really think about what ingredients I most want to use this year, what fills similar roles to something else, so that maybe I don't need to grow both myself. For example, Snapdragons and Stock have a really similar shape. They're both fragrant. And since I only have room for one, I'm going to grow Snapdragons. I also thought about what is easy to find at the market or source from others and what's difficult for me to find. I personally love the way I set the spreadsheet up because it's so easy to filter for exactly what I want to find. If I get an inquiry for a summer event, I can filter on the summer column and see everything from my brainstorm that blooms in summer and then think about which ingredients might work best for that event. Within that, if I want to search further into what textures or what vines I love um, and that I'll have blooming at that time or that I can buy in at that time, I can filter on that. As far as growing, I got my brainstorm list down from those 117 types in the brainstorm to 55 to grow myself. And many of those 55 are perennial plants like mock orange, bearded iris, echinacea, roses, lilies, daffodils, fritillaria, peonies, mums, and also things like the cherry trees that were planted here before we moved in. And some of those 55 are annual bulbs like tulips that I've already planted, you know, last fall. So they're already in the ground. <laughs> So when I went to filter on my to plant column, those are all things I still need or want to plant this year. And that gets me down to just over 30 types left to plant this year. And of those 30 types, those are annuals, biennials, or perennials that I'm planning to start from seed, as well as a few perennials I'm planning to buy in from the nursery. Okay, so I've narrowed this whole big brainstorm down into about 30 things I want to start from seed. And within that, I've thought about which ones are my priorities. First priority are any that were on the top 10 signature flowers list. Second priority are on the close contenders list, those 10 or 12 more that almost made the cut to my top 10. Third priority for me is anything left that fell into round one or two of my brainstorming. There are far fewer round three and four flowers that made it onto my grow list, but a few did, and I just know that those are lesser priority for me. If I go to sow a couple trays of seeds and I can't fit them all, maybe I'll just do six cells of that lesser priority item or not start it at all and give more room to the higher priority ones. Or if I start the lesser priority seeds and I don't end up having room to plant them, I can scrap them with less guilt, or I can fit a few into a pot somewhere to just trial. It's not a priority to take up precious bed space, and defining that really helped me. So even though this is a huge, big exercise, 
I found that it was really worthwhile because taking that time up front to go through this and think about your signature style, think about your favorites, think about the things that brought you to this and that make you happy. When you prioritize those, I think the year is going to go well. (laughs) So I know most of us, you know, this is coming out in March. A lot of what we're going to grow is already sewn or started, but I still think it's worth it to go through either now or next year before you start seeds. We're always growing something. So whenever you have time to sit down and think about this, I just recommend doing it in whatever way works best for you. Okay, and the last thing from the exercise that I haven't shared yet is my don't love list. We'll go through this quickly. Um, Some of these are going to be controversial, but let's just do it. When I looked back on photos from the past year or two, I noticed a few themes I wasn't into. The first is items that to me look dry when they're fresh, like straw flower and winged everlasting. When I combined those with fresh flowers, I felt that they almost pulled away from those fresh flowers. It like took, my eyes were kind of drawn to those ingredients first and not in a positive way. I know these are incredible varieties for drying. They hold their color. They're super popular. I'm not trying to hate on anyone that loves them, but for me, they didn't work in fresh arrangements and designs. Atriplex is another one that I bought as cuts, and when I tried to use it, I had a hard time making it work with fresh flowers. Another theme I didn't love were ingredients that felt really stiff, like wheatgrass and poppy pods. At the time of using both of those ingredients in person, I loved them. So it might be something where they look great to me in person, but they kind of stand out in photos. On wheat, I love its little eyelashes, and they were a really fun, like, fall-feeling ingredient. But when I look back now, they look, they kind of, like, stick out to me as really stiff and straight and kind of look out of place in the arrangements. They're almost dried-looking, like the straw flower and winged everlasting I just mentioned. Poppy pods are another one that are really cool and funky, and they worked great for me if I sunk them down into the arrangement where you could see the pod but not the stalk. In photos where I place the pods to dance above the arrangements, I'm just not loving the look of the thick, stiff stems. Another one that looked stiff to me is Areostemin. Maybe it was just a couple of bunches that I got, but it was a really upright foliage and I found it took away from the movement I like in my design style. I noticed some scale issues in some of my photos in terms of size and scale. One was euphorbia, which first of all, I hate dealing with the sap, so only use it a couple times and I'll never use it again. But the ones I used weren't size right for what I was using them for. They were too big and bulky, and they created weird space and distraction. Some sunflowers also caused scale issues for me. I love some of the cool colors like jade and pro-cut plum, and I find that they work best for me when they're spaced really tightly together in the garden, and then they grow small, like two to three inch flower heads. But even tightly spaced, some varieties still grew like six-inch heads. I think those would be amazing in a tall installation or like an extra large arrangement. But I've put a few big sunflowers into smaller scale offerings. And when I look back, they just feel out of place. 
In the garden and in arrangements, I find myself less drawn to silver green colors. I'm thinking of things like Artemisia, Dusty Miller, and Lamb's Ear. And even some eucalyptus and mountain mint varieties tend to be more silver. Sometimes I think those can look great like repeating in a garden, but I find that silver usually really pops out to my eye and just stands out. And I personally prefer more of like true greens and deep greens. In arrangements, a pet peeve of some of my past work is where I tried to blend true greens with silver greens. I think silvers can look great if they're the only foliage in arrangement, but that's hard to do because most flower stems and leaves are true green. So silver just stands out to my eyes. The last thing I already mentioned is snapdragons. I mentioned before that I'm head over heels for the more open flower petals of Chantilly and Madame Butterfly, and I find myself moving away from the Costa and Potomac varieties, like the more classic snapdragon shape. But in addition, as I look back through old photos, I noticed there were some arrangements, especially from a couple years ago, where I made the thick stems or the backside of the snapdragons pretty visible. Nowadays, I would make sure to show the front side that has more petals, or I would sink the flower down a little bit, or place other fluffy ingredients nearby or just under the snapdragon flowers so that the stem isn't so focal. So that concludes the exercise portion of this pod, and it's pretty long and I'm pretty tired, so I'm making an executive decision to add one more part onto this little podcast series and make this signature flowers and seed starting podcast a three-parter. So that'll be a really short one on seed starting, and I'll get it out soon. Thanks so much for listening in, and if you love the podcast, the best thing you can do is share it with a flower friend. And then go to whatever platform you listen on and rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks so much, and I'll be back soon.